You may be seated. This morning we're going to begin a new series. This will be our second year of following a Bible study plan called the Narrative Lectionary. And from now through the season of Advent, we'll be exploring stories from the Old Testament related to the idea that we are guided by God's promises. Now you might think that if we're going to begin at the beginning, we would start with the creation accounts, one of them, in Genesis 1 or 2, or maybe the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. But this morning, we're going to skip those stories and go straight to Genesis 6, to another story about creation. Although you might not have realized it's about creation. This morning, we're going to look at the story of Noah's Ark. This story is all about creation, destruction, and recreation. And as we hear these Old Testament stories, we often ask the question, are these stories true? To which I would ask, what does it mean for a story to be true? Now, some people in this room believe that the Bible stories could have been recorded on video exactly the way they're described in the Bible. And other people in this room believe that the Bible stories contain insight about humanity and God and wisdom that we recognize as truth. So as we tell these stories over the next several weeks, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on whether or not they were factually true. Because here at Zion, we have room for a lot of different opinions. I'm going to focus on how they are authentically true in what they reveal to us about ourselves and about God, because I think we can find some agreement there. So what can we learn about God and ourselves from the story of Noah and the ark? The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil, all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. <coughs> Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long. 
Thank you, Mary. Let's see, is this gonna, it's going to work. That's excellent. Welcome back. We missed you. The grown-ups missed you, too. <laughs> Friends, the Bible is a group testimony of faith. It does not recount one person's experience of God, but the ever-evolving experience of the whole people of God. And there's an arc to this story. It's going somewhere. Christian author Brian McLaren says it's like a play with six acts, the Bible is. The first act is creation, where a totally loving, totally good God creates a good world for the sheer enjoyment of it. And the next act is crisis, in which humans get the knowledge of good and evil, and we use our God-given free will to choose evil. And this morning's story falls in this crisis section, and it leaves God in the position of deciding what to do about evil in the world. I invite you can follow along in your own Bibles. If you use the Bibles in your pews, we're on page 9. The first thing that we notice in this story is what humans are doing and how God is feeling. Verse 5 says that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth. And sometimes it helps to study the individual words. So let me tell you that that word wickedness is the same Hebrew word that's translated evil in the first couple chapters as in the knowledge of good and evil. Wickedness and evil, it's the same word. So in the ten generations since Adam and Eve, people have filled the world with the evil that we choose. We got the knowledge of good and evil. We're free to choose either. We choose evil. It's built up, and that's what's recognized. The earth is full of wickedness. The story of the garden describes humanity's fall from innocence. And once we begin to choose evil, we just keep on doing it. And verse 5 also says that every inclination of the thoughts of human hearts was only evil all the time. This, I think, is an over-exaggeration for the point of the story. And I'll tell you why. We're going to see it again at the end of the story. So how does God feel about this? Look very closely at what's there. Because the important thing to notice here is that God is not angry. There is wickedness in the earth, and God is not angry about that. Look what's there. Instead, God feels sadness, pain, grief, regret. The evil that we choose to do breaks God's heart. Did you know that every inhabited continent has a flood story? Even though archaeologists haven't been able to find evidence of a total worldwide flood, but every continent that has indigenous people, one of those people, at least one people, has a flood story. But the gods in the other stories, those gods are angry. They're one of two things. They're either angry or they're annoyed with humans. They're annoyed either because humans are too loud 
or because they're breeding too fast. This is what, this is what I'm just telling you what the other ancient stories have. It's okay to laugh at that. I think it's kind of funny. <laughs> so the ancient Hebrews, they tell their own version of this story. And what they decide to teach is that their God was not like that. Our God is not eagerly waiting for us to make a little mistake so God can smash us. God was hoping that the creatures made in God's image would choose to mimic God's goodness. But instead they chose evil, and God is devastated by this. So what does God do? The story says, and there's no way around this, the story says that God decides to blot out life from the earth. And we can't get around the fact that that's what the text says. I'm not going to try to explain that away. So what do we have to understand when we look at this? There's something really interesting here. Do you see that in verse 11, it says that the earth was corrupted and full of violence. And then in verse 13, it says that God is going to destroy it. That word corruption and the word violence, so the things humans are doing and the things God is going to do, that's the same word in Hebrew. And that we, can't, we don't have a word that works like that in English. And so our English translators chose two different words, which they had to do, but we lose something important here. Because this tells us that in this story that depicts God as intending to wipe out the earth, that's going to happen using the same thing that we've already been doing. Now, you may, you may have heard the phrase that we aren't punished for our sins, but we're punished by our sins. Often, but not always, our suffering is a direct result or a more intense version of what we've already been doing. In this story, God is so heartbroken and so discouraged about what we're doing, already doing to ourselves and one another, that the story says God delivers the same thing back on us. The same thing we've already been doing. And God does this basically by revoking the act of creation. Remember I told you this was a creation story? In this story, God sort of uncreates the world. Because before life appeared, the word says that the earth was formless and void, and all that existed was a watery chaos. And by our violence and our corruption, we're already undoing the work of creation. And so God just finishes that work and takes the earth back to a state of watery chaos. But... God does not totally destroy the earth. All the fish are still there, right? Fish are fine. They're fine. They're underwater. <laughs> the earth is still there. It's covered up. And a small group of humans and animals, God saves them as a seed of promise for a new creation. God makes a way for them to survive and to stay safe during this time of uncreation. And this story is a reminder to us that our actions have consequences. The evil that the humans chose to do affected the plants and the animals. Are you hearing me? Just like it does now. 
And sometimes those are really long-lasting effects. The rain comes down for 40 days. And the water rises for another 150 days. And then it's another 40 days before Noah can send anything out. But the God who creates and loves the world was still around. And chapter 8, verse 1 says, God remembered Noah and the animals. And even as we suffer the results of our own choices, God does not forget us. Even though we've got destruction, the story also affirms that God is a good creator who's always seeking an opportunity to create something new. And so what happens? God sends a wind to dry up the water. The very same word in Genesis 1, where the spirit, remember I've told you before, spirit and wind, it's the same word. Genesis 1, the spirit is hovering over the waters. Genesis 8, God sends a wind to dry up the waters. And creation starts again. And look what God says when the humans and the animals leave the ark. It's chapter 8, verse 21. I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. It's the same thing that was said about humanity before the flood. Remember, the inclination of the human heart is evil. Before the flood, the inclination of the human heart is evil after the flood. What is so amazing about this story is that the flood doesn't change humanity. But the flood changes God. Now, some of us have been taught that God is changeless, so before you accuse me of false teaching, hear me out. What we see in this story is that God wants to be in relationship with us. And we know that to be in any real relationship is to risk being hurt, right? We can't really be in relationship without choosing to be affected by the other person. And it's the same thing with God. Real love is vulnerability. It's making yourself open, and vulnerability leads to change. And God chooses to be vulnerable by being in relationship with us. This idea of being totally changeless, that idea that perfection is total changelessness, total changelessness is not perfection, it's prideful stubbornness. If we refuse to ever change, right, even when we should, and what we have in this story is an image of a God who does change because of relationship. God demonstrates the maturity and the strength of character to be changed in a loving relationship with others. And this is not the only time. The Old Testament has other stories that depict God changing God's mind because of a relationship with humanity. And here in the story, God makes the first covenant with all creation. A covenant is not a legal agreement. It's a promise to be in relationship. And look what happens. God asks the people to be fruitful and multiply, which is exactly the same invitation God gave to Adam and Eve at the beginning. 
And being fruitful and multiplying is the opposite of violence and corruption. God is inviting the people into a new way. And even though God knows full well that we can and likely will choose evil, God invites us to live in a new creation anyway. And here's what's so wild. God promises that even when we choose corruption again, God will never again choose destruction. The first covenant that God makes with the earth is to not answer our violence with God's violence. And the rainbow is the sign of that. The word rainbow is just bow, like bow and arrow. God hangs up God's weapon of violence in the sky. Now, this does not mean that God is not concerned about evil, because our evil continues to grieve God. But after seeing that answering violence with violence doesn't change anything, God decides to find another way to deal with our evil instead. And the question becomes, how can God destroy evil in the earth without destroying the people who are doing the evil? And that is what the whole rest of the Bible is about. After the flood, God chooses to respond to evil with covenant love, both in this story and all the ones that come after it. Because God knows that we're not going to choose good. And when God chooses to never again destroy us, the option that is left to God is for God to suffer the pain and the grief that our evil causes. In fact, this bow that's hanging in the sky, if you were to use it as a weapon of violence, the arrow would hit God and not hit us because of the way it's hanging. From this point forward, God chooses to absorb our violence. And while we know that the authors of this story had no idea who Jesus was, you see the seeds, right? You see the seeds of the story here. Because thousands of years later, when we still choose violence, God chooses to finally conquer evil in the body of Jesus. The life of Jesus shows us what it looks like to only ever choose good when we have the knowledge of good and evil. The death of Jesus demonstrates God's total commitment to absorb our violence. All of the violence we can dish out, God takes it in God's self. And the resurrection of Jesus puts an end to our fear of death. And that fear of scarcity is so many times what keeps us from choosing good. We can choose good regardless of what's going to happen to us. So when we see this rainbow in the sky, we do not fearfully remember destruction. We joyfully anticipate the sacrificial love that will finally conquer evil. Amen. As Brian comes back to the piano, I invite you to take a few minutes in quiet contemplation this morning. You might want to get yourself settled in your seat. You might want to close your eyes to help you focus.
You might want to notice if you're holding tension anywhere in your back or your shoulders. You do a lot of talking here. And so when we're together, we also want to practice some listening. So as we quiet ourselves, I ask you, what is the Spirit of God whispering to you this morning? Or if that language doesn't work, what is rising to the surface of your consciousness as you meditate this morning? I'll say a closing prayer. God of promise, you set a bow in the sky to remind us that you will never again answer our violence with your violence. Make us ever mindful of your promise so that we might honor our covenant with you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.